Welcome to History of the Sports Bra. Hello, hello. Welcome to History of the Sports Bra. I'm one of your hosts, Sophie Segretti. And I'm your other host, Julia Hossetter. And this week, I am giving our lovely co-host, Sophie, a little bit of a breather and taking the reins on the history of women's tennis, a sport that I love and play. The impact that women in tennis have had extends well beyond the court, and I'm honored to tell you guys all about Mm -hmm. that today. But before we dive deeper, we're going to share our favorite women's sports update of the week. Mine is a real hooray in women's sports news. So last week, Brazil and England both announced equal pay for their men and women's national soccer teams. And I think actually, so Brazil said it first and then like minutes later or so it appeared on social media. Yeah, it was like back to back. This is obviously something that we want in all sports, but I'm hoping that this starts a domino effect in the soccer world in general, because, you know, we've talked on this podcast in the past about the U.S. women's national team fight for equal pay and what a struggle that has been. But the reality is in a lot of these other countries, the the disparity between men and women's soccer is even greater. Mm-hmm. So that was like a really big step and a big hurrah for for equal pay lovers everywhere. Everything about it's great. I think it's based off percentages still. Like I don't think it's actually like dollar to dollar, but still like percentages is a step in the right direction to, you know, make sure that these people can make a living and live mm-hmm. comfortably being at the top of what they do, which is play soccer. So that's awesome. Exactly. And then my little women's sports news update comes from Naomi Osaka. So Naomi Osaka, I mentioned her last episode. She's one of the top tennis players in the world. She's won Grand Slams and she's definitely over the past couple of years found her voice a little bit more and has been mm-hmm. wearing a mask, an individual, like a unique mask every single match during her US Open run yeah, that says the this. name of a, a person of color who has tragically been murdered or involved in a shooting with police officers and then also Trayvon Martin, which was the George Zimmerman case down in Florida, kind of highlighting systemic injustices in the um, American system. And then she, a couple weeks ago, after Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back, she's playing the Western Southern Open and boycotted that day that a lot of sports leagues decided to boycott or strike Mm -hmm. to highlight another example of systemic racism in our country. So... I love that she's standing up for what she believes in. She represents Japan, mm-hmm. but she's also, I think, a citizen of America. She's mm-hmm. half black, half Asian, and she's just kicking it out there. So we we stand Naomi Osaka and what she's been doing. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Not to mention that she's maybe the best right now. Right. Like yeah. the best. No, yeah. One of the best tennis players right now. She's at the top of her game. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So to use her platform, and she's one of the highest paid players. She has tons of sponsors. Tennis is a world Mm -hmm. sport, so it's great to get it out not only to fellow Americans, but to the entire world. Go go Naomi and keep on on keeping on if you ever hear this, LMAO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my god. Can you imagine? Oh my god. Ooh, baby. Well, you know, one can we can wish. We can wish, guys. So. Yeah. We'll tag her this up. Uh we'll see <laughs> there what we'll tag on her biggest yeah. <laughs> All right, so it's time to buckle up and let's get down to business. So tennis is widely presumed to be the sport closest to gender equality in the entire world. But how did it get that way? 
Well, we got to take it way back, all the way back to 1874, with the grand opening of the first tennis club in England. Tennis combined aspects of a British game called rackets and a Spanish game called pelota. Well, pelota deadass means ball in English, so you combine the two and get racquetball. Or ball in Spanish. Pelota yes. is ball in Spanish. Ball in Spanish. <laughs> so combine the two and then you get racquetball in English. And lawn tennis was born. Three years later, in 1877, the first ever Wimbledon tournament was held as a fundraiser. Women were not allowed to compete in Wimbledon until 1884, but I think Sophie can agree that at this point we expect a little bit of delays in the inclusion of women Mm -hmm. in anything men do. I guess they have to try it out first. Yes, they still had to wear that appropriate ankle and wrist covering, high society Victoria fashion with corsets and all. (laughs) Well, once you know it, when you wear a thousand pounds of clothing in the summer heat, there might be some health issues. In fact, one woman did faint in the second set, which led to the questioning of the durability of women instead of the questioning of the required fashion, which luckily they don't wear that stuff today. I couldn't even imagine. I'd be sweating. No, you know, it's just classic that instead of questioning, hmm, we should change what you're wearing. It's like, hmm, maybe women aren't strong enough. I think if you put dudes in that type of clothing, they would probably faint also. Anybody would faint. Yeah. Luckily, yes. Again, luckily that fashion did change. And then at the time, so this was a British-born game. They had colonized wrongfully, we like to point out, loads of other countries. Mm -hmm. And tennis began to spread through these countries, including Australia and Bermuda. In fact, tennis was then introduced in the United States after a woman named Mary Ewing Outerbridge played in Bermuda on holiday and brought it back. At this point, the game of tennis was taking off on a global scale at the turn of the century. Because of this meteoric rise in popularity of tennis around the globe, it was officially added to the 1900 Olympics. The women's event was added in 1904. Charlotte Cooper of Great Britain took home the gold. This is kind of a tangent, but tennis was not an Olympic event for a period of 64 years, spanning 1924 to 1988, which I had no clue. And this was due to some disputes between the Olympic Committee and the International Lawn Tennis Association. So I did a little digging, and my good friend Wikipedia told me that the dispute was over how to define amateur players. That makes sense. When it eventually came as a full metal sport. Full metal sport sounds like something completely (laughs) else, like a motorcycle. (laughs) But they mean a sport that was able to medal in in the Olympics. It was open for players regardless of age and regardless of amateur status. Okay. But anywho. So the turn of the century brought in some changes to the women's tennis game. There are more international turns that started to organize. So the top women's players began to go on tours. The rest of the Grand Slams were also created, including the U.S. Open in 1881, The women began competing in that six years later in 1887. The French opened in 1891. Again, six years later, the women started competing in 1897. And then finally, the Australian opened in 1905. And women began playing that in 1922. And now these players are allowed to wear less restrictive clothing. Yay, free the ankles and the wrists. Nice. But although women have been involved since its inception, the sport had one catastrophic flaw, segregation. This brings us to the first player that needs to be highlighted, Althea Gibson, the woman who shattered the color barrier in tennis. I feel like I'm so excited to highlight Althea Gibson because Arthur Ashe gets talked about all the time. I feel like Althea Gibson less so. So here we go. Yeah, we're going to give her the props she deserves. Don't you worry. 
No, I had no idea. As a lover of tennis, I had no idea, which is probably just me and my shortcomings. But probably a lot of my co-players don't know about this either. So I'm excited yeah, to, yeah. to dive into it. So Althea was born in South Carolina in 1927, but her family moved to Harlem when the Great Depression hit. She was a naturally gifted athlete and quickly became a great paddle tennis player. At 13, she quit school and said that's when she, quote, began street fighting, playing girls basketball, and watching movies. That sounds like a great way to spend your time. At 13, I did homework, watched movies, and I guess I did play girls basketball at that time, but I didn't street fight. (laughs) Two of the three. (laughs) So at the same time, her neighbors started collecting money for her to become a junior member at the Cosmopolitan Tennis Club in Harlem because of her talent in paddle tennis. She was quoted as saying, I kept wanting to fight the other player every time I started losing the match. And for those of my friends who are listening to this and know me, they would say the exact (laughs) same. I have the exact same mentality. I get so frustrated at whoever I'm playing and myself, but also whoever I'm playing. So that's like the most relatable thing ever. That is so funny. Also, just because, you know, you kind of picture tennis players as being a little bit more of the proper. Yes. You know, they're country clubby. Yes. Yeah. Country clubby. They can't like scream and swear. And then, so it's funny trying to imagine a tennis player being like, I keep wanting to fight the other player. player. (laughs) I want to beat up my (laughs) opponent right now. She started entering in tournaments organized by the American Tennis Association or ATA, which is the oldest black sports organization in the U.S. She not only entered in these tournaments, but won tons of these throughout her teens. She was the first black woman to compete at the USTA, which is the United States Tennis Association National Indoor Championships, where she reached the quarterfinals. She also earned a full athletic scholarship to Florida A&M University. But despite all the success, she was still barred from competing in the U.S. Open due to the color of her skin. While the USTA rules barred racial discrimination, you needed to accumulate points in sanctioned tournaments that were held at white-only clubs to qualify for the tournament. Like The opportunity was there technically, but not, if that makes sense, because you can't, you needed like a certain amount of points, like a minimum to be able to enter into Mm -hmm. the US Open. Yep. It's the whole, like, you apply to an entry-level job and they say they want three years of experience. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is entry-level. So this all changed in 1950 when people closer refused to remain idle and lobbied for her inclusion in the U.S. Open. She received her invitation and became the first Black person to compete in the U.S. Open. She lost in the second round in a tough three-cent match against the reigning Wimbledon champion, but still her participation gathered international media attention. She's drawn comparisons to Jackie Robinson, as they both refused to let Jim Crow mentality stop them from competing at the highest level. In 1955, the U.S. State Department sent Althea to Asia to play other tennis players on a six-week Goodwill tour. I thought it was interesting that the State Department sent her and others to play. It must have been right before the Vietnam War started. I think. Yeah, November 1955. Okay, so that is, I was accurate. So I'm sure it was something to do with that. In 1956, Althea became the first person of color to win a Grand Slam event, the French Open. Keep in mind that back in the U.S., they still had segregation for everything. So winning a major in an all-white sport was even more remarkable. Oh my gosh. And this was only the beginning. Althea kept on going. 1957 was her year. She won the singles title at Wimbledon, becoming the first black champion in its 80-year history and the first champion to receive the winner's trophy directly from Queen Elizabeth herself. Oh my gosh. Queen Elizabeth has never bothered before to come down and meet the champion. 
But when Althea won, she came down and handed her the trophy. That's pretty cool. I'm going to find a picture of that and I will throw it up on the site because that is worth seeing. The queen kind of looks the same. I understand (laughs) that it's like 70 years later or whatever, but she's kind of always looked like old as hell. No offense to Yeah. Oh my gosh, I am looking at the picture of her giving to her and she does. She looks the same. Obviously, her hair is not white. Yeah. I was say her hair is not white, but she is the same queen that we all know mm-hmm. and love. And love, yep. That year, she also won the doubles championship at Wimbledon. So when she came home, she became only the second black American after Jesse Owens to have a ticker tape parade in New York City. Like the ones that they gave out for the U.S. Women's National Team. Whoa. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yes. Only the second black American to ever receive. Like, That's you know, crazy. it's just like all this stuff is building up and building up. So one month later, she won the U.S. Open. And when she was asked how she felt, she said that, quote, winning Wimbledon was wonderful and it meant a lot to me. But there's nothing quite like winning the championship of your own country. I feel like a lot of American tennis players express that sentiment Mm -hmm. about the U.S. Open, especially it is in New York. Yeah, the heart of the United States, essentially. Mm -hmm. After winning more than 11 Grand Slam titles and singles, women's doubles and mixed doubles, she was forced to retire from amateur tennis at the end of 1958. So you guys see, despite all the success at major tournaments, there was zero prize money. Direct endorsements were also forbidden. So to make a living, you would have to do promotional tournaments or matches on the side and be considered a professional. Oh, that's pretty crazy. So an organized professional tour for women would not happen for another 15 years. When Mm. she tried to become a professional, she often did not receive invitations to tournaments that her white counterparts were getting. And this was not due to a lack of skill. She often thrashed many of the women who were offered spots. Yeah, this sounds a little bit like racism to me. Yes, essentially. So despite the monumental moment of breaking through the color barrier in tennis, it did not destroy it once and for all. After retiring, she went on to play for the LPGA, which is really cool. Oh, whoa. She was dynamic. She played golf professionally and tennis professionally. Yeah, I feel like it's very rare for somebody to play two sports professionally. Dang, LPGA and tennis. She's a jack of all trades, I guess. Yeah, jack of all trades and a master of all. I know the phrase is jack of all trades, master of none. She's a master of all. Ace of all trades. That is the name of our episode. Ace of all trades. I like that. (laughs) So she's had an everlasting legacy in tennis, paving the way for the likes of Arthur Ashe and the Williams sisters. She's been voted into the Air National Women's Sports Hall of Fame, the Air National Tennis Hall of Fame, the Black Athletes Hall of Fame, the National Women's Hall of Fame. So to put a wrap on Althea Gibson's impact through tennis, I would like Sophie to quote a 1977 historical analysis of women in sports by New York Times columnist William C. Roden. William C. Roden wrote... Althea Gibson and Wilma Rudolph are, without question, the most significant athletic forces among Black women in sports history. While Rudolph's accomplishments brought more visibility to women as athletes, Althea's accomplishments were more revolutionary because of the psychosocial impact on Black America. Even to Black people who hadn't the slightest idea of where or what Wimbledon was, her victory, like Jackie Robinson's in baseball and Jack Johnson's in boxing, proved again that Black people, when given an opportunity, could compete at any level in American society. I mean, growing up in Harlem and then getting a trophy from the Queen of England, it's pretty cool. 
majors, the four Grand Slams, weren't paid. So there's kind of this turning point in tennis history called the Open Era. Open Era or Modern Era, whichever one you prefer. But it started in 1968 when the four Grand Slam tournaments agreed to allow professionals to play, basically. So you could turn pro and you could make money off of it. For those of us who don't know, can you remind us what are the four Grand Slams? Yes. So the four Grand Slams, they're also called majors. They're kind of interchangeable. I think I've went back and forth a ton Mm -hmm. through it. But the four Grand Slams or four majors are the Australian Open, which is the first one. It's played in January. Then it's the French Open, which is played, I think, in like June. I want to say, yeah, I want to say June. Wimbledon, which is in July. And then the U.S. Open, which rounds out Labor Day weekend in September. Played every single year. It's the biggest stages in tennis. So before this agreement where the four Grand Slam tournaments allowed professionals to play, only amateurs or unpaid players could play in these tournaments, which placed those people under a significant financial burden, similar to what Althea Gibson experienced. In simpler terms, it allowed people to make a living playing tennis. So two professional tennis circuits arose after this agreement. The World Championship Tennis, which was a men's only league, of course, and National Tennis League. Billie Jean King joined the National Tennis League. The first Wimbledon Championships in 1968 had a two and a half to one prize fund difference between the men and the women, and that gap would only increase over the next couple years. And in 1970, it was about 12 to one at most tournaments. So women's singles champion at Wimbledon in 1970 was Margaret Court, and she received a $15,000 bonus for this accomplishment. The male champion, by contrast, received $1 million. Oh my gosh. I know. That pay gap is just massive for the same tournament. What I think is interesting about tennis, it's the only sport where both men and women compete on the same stage at the same time. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of more of a... Like a direct one-to-one. Correlation. Yeah, between the two. Mm -hmm. So fed up with this type of treatment, nine of the most prominent women created their own tournament in Houston to play. With Billie Jean King leading, those nine women created their own circuit, dubbed the Virginia Slim Circuit, which would eventually evolve into the Women's Tennis Association, or WTA. As I'm sure you guys caught, Virginia Slims was a cigarette brand. I know. It's a cigarette brand. And so while that seems like a bizarre name for a tennis league, I was looking into the merch for the Virginia Slim Circuit which A, is really cool, and I'll put some pics on the website. But the old Virginia Slims ads were something of beauty and were very empowering. Their slogan was like, you've come a long way, baby. Look how far women have come. It definitely seems strange in 2020 that a cigarette sponsored a women's tennis league. But back in the day, the partnership made sense because Virginia Slims really did stand for female empowerment. Yeah, and they were the sponsors of the tour for quite a long time. They started the support, but then also followed Mm -hmm. it up year after year, which is really cool. I think that they love to market cigarettes as something that like an athletic woman would would do. (laughs) Again, something we laugh at at in 2020, but you can sell anything in 1970. So this organization, the Virginia Slim Circuit, led to an explosion for potential earnings for women. In 1971, Billy was the first woman to make $100,000 playing tennis. Now, we cannot discuss Billie Jean without discussing the famous Battle of the Sexes match between her and Bobby Riggs in 1973. Ah, yes. So for some context, Bobby Riggs was a known misogynist and former professional tennis player who was 55 years old. He challenged world number one Margaret Court to a Mother's Day match and won easily 6-2, 6-1. 
Riding high after that win and feeling good, he challenged world number two, Billie Jean King, to a similar affair in September of 1973. Riggs, being the asshole that he was, continuously slammed women's tennis, which Billie took personally for obvious reasons. King came out on the court looking like, I'm being serious, she looked like Cleopatra. She was carried out by six men. Oh, she was like, wow. you know, on their shoulders or whatever on one of those bed things. Oh my gosh. Dressed in like Egyptian kind of wear. Wow. And then Riggs, by contrast, wore a sugar daddy outfit. Like sugar daddy, I think is a candy. It is a candy. Okay, yes. So confirm. they sponsored Riggs. They paid him to wear this sugar daddy sponsored outfit. So clearly it was a whole spectacle in the Houston Astrodrome, and it drew more than 30,000 people in the sands, 50 million viewers in the U.S., and 90 million wow. viewers worldwide. So the coverage was insane on this. After a shaky start, falling behind 3-2, King rallied to win the match 6-4, 6-3, 6-3. Yes. I know. I didn't see the movie with um, Emma Stone. And Me either. Steve Carell. Steve Carell. But Battle of Sexes, it's a movie. I want to watch that. I'm pretty sure there's also like ESPN. Like a documentary. documentary. Yeah, yeah. On it. Seems like a good 30 for 30 topic yes. if I had to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Honestly, it's right up that alley, right? So as King correctly predicted, the implications of this match went far beyond that day in September. It provided invaluable exposure to women's tennis with that audience and altered people's stereotypes of women, both of which contributed to the impending expansion of women's tennis. This kind of also indirectly reaffirmed the necessity of Title IX, which was passed in June of 1972. To give a summary, Title IX, in essence, provided equal opportunity for women to attend schools, like college schools. Mm -hmm. It also tangentially created regulations for higher education institutions to provide similar athletic opportunities for both men and women, or risk elimination of funding. It also applied to aspects of the educational system, such as sexual harassment. So it's a pretty wide-reaching legislature mm -hmm. that we got to keep on defending. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's the one thing that we've talked about on every single episode of the pod. So if there's one thing that you take away, please let it be the importance of Title IX on the lives of women everywhere and women's sports in general. Definitely. The Virginia Slim Circuit kind of evolves into the Women's Tennis Association. So when Billie Jean King hit $100,000 earnings in 1971, the original WTA began to expand and maintain sponsorships. Shockingly, in 1973, even before the Battle of the Sexes match, the U.S. Open was the first major to provide equal prize money to both men and women. So they kind of mm. understood that women's tennis was just as crucial to entertainment mm -hmm. value and the future of the sport as men's tennis. And I think that they definitely take pride in that. They mentioned that on their website i tried to like find out like what led to that decision if there was any yeah. like, pressure for anything i didn't really find mm -hmm. anything so this was 30 years before the next grand slam did the same oh wow in 1975 the wta secured a tv contract with cbs chris everett became the first female athlete to make a million dollars in career earnings but in 1976 by 1980, the WTA had 250 members, 47 international events, and $7.2 million in prize money. 
now I just kind of want to run through some important and legendary players from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Mm-hmm. First, we're going to have to mention Margaret Court. We don't like Margaret Court. She no. is kind of like the stain on women's tennis. She opposes LGBTQ rights um, in that community, but she does have the most Grand Slam singles titles at 24, which Serena will hopefully tie and eventually break. Yeah. Next up, BJ King. We've talked about her earlier. So she's from the US. She had 39 total Grand Slam titles, 12 in singles, 81% singles winning percentage, which is insane, 129 total titles, and around $2 million in career prize money. Next up, we have Chris Everett. She's also from the U.S. She has 21 total Grand Slam titles, 18 of which are singles, 90% singles win percentage, 157 titles, and about $9 million in prize money. Moving right along, we have Yvonne Gulagog. Gulagog. Callie. (laughs) Sorry. No, please. Please correct me. Phonics has always been an issue for me. She had 14 Grand Slams. Seven were singles, 86 total titles, and in 1980 was the first mother to win Wimbledon in 60 years. We have Martina Navratilova from the U.S. Well, she represents the U.S. She's 18 Grand Slam singles titles, 31 Grand Slam women's doubles titles, which is a record, 31. 15 Grand Slam mixed doubles titles for a total of 59 major titles, which is an open era record for both male and female tennis players. And I don't think that will ever be touched, honestly. Mm -hmm. $21 million in prize money, 167 singles titles, 177 doubles titles, which are both records. And she was the number one singles player for four straight years. Basically, her name is plastered on all the record books for all possible categories in tennis. So the next player is Steffi Graf, which it is a good thing that I am the one announcing Steffi Graf because my mom is like a diehard Steffi Graf <laughs> fan. So yeah. Oh, yeah. So Steffi Graf had 22 Grand Slam singles titles. She had around $22 million in prize money, 13 straight Grand Slam finals, which is a record. In 1988, she was the only person to win the Golden Slam, where she won all four major titles and a gold medal in singles in the same calendar year. She also was the only player to win all four majors at least four times. That's crazy. So she retired at the age of 30. Real quick, I just want to point out, so like, honestly, tennis, the careers are pretty short-lived. Similar to, I guess, football, it's not something that you see a ton of players playing into their 40s. So it makes like kind of like the Roger Federer's or the Serena Williams Venus Williams of the world really, really impressive because the average retirement age is like around 32. More on Steffi. She held the WTA top ranking slot for a joint record of 186 consecutive weeks, which of course she shares with Serena Williams. Mm-hmm. She was also the only player apart from Federer to have been holding the number one ranking for over a hundred weeks after like at her first time at number one. So a lot of these players reach number one and fall back down many times. Mm-hmm. And so she and Roger Federer are the only ones to hit that number one, hold it for a hundred weeks the first time they hit number one. And the total number of weeks that she spent at the top is 377, which is the highest of all time, men and women. And then this is just a fun fact that my mom threw in there. So you know how tennis players get three balls at the beginning of each point? Mm -hmm. So usually, you know, they pocket one, 
hold one to serve and then throw one back at the ball person. Apparently, Steffi would hold onto the third in her hand, serve with like, so she'd have one in her hand that she was going to serve. And then she had that other one other like one. in her racket hand, serve with it and play the point with a ball in her hand. I wonder like where she picked that up at. I have no idea. I, I said something to her mom. I was like, that seems to be like a disadvantage. But when you like Google Steffi Graf, her Wikipedia picture, like she's clearly holding a ball while she's playing tennis. Like playing point. Yeah. That's amazing. But probably because yeah. she also had a one-handed backhand. So it was like, mm. you know, she didn't need her left hand probably throughout the point. But still, like I've never seen another player do that, even if they do have a one-handed yeah. backhand ever yeah so last but not least we have monica Sellis, and she represented the yugoslavia and then eventually the u.s she had nine grand slam titles and eight of which came when she was just a teenager and she was the youngest major winner she was 16 and she won the french open back in 1990 sadly in 1993 she was the victim of an encore attack where she was stabbed in the back by a nine inch knife she did end up returning to tennis two years later but she just couldn't be as consistent as she was beforehand, understandably so. I went oh I did watch the video on YouTube because I'm just like one of those people where I'm like, okay, like I gotta see this. Yeah. And the guy, I guess, he had mental health issues, which played into, mm. I don't know, he was charged, but had a different type of sentence than you would normally yep. see because of that. And Monica Sellis has been a big opponent of changing the encore security because of this. Actually, at the next mm-hmm. tournament on the changeover, when you get to take your like mm-hmm. minute break, instead of facing the court with your back to the stands like they normally do, they actually yeah. turn the benches around so that they would be able to see the crowd in response oh to this because she got stabbed right in the back. Oof. Oof. There's usually like streakers or whatever, but this was definitely the first mm-hmm. violent incident. And I think that it cut a promising career short, Mm -hmm. which is really disappointing. Mm -hmm. So we kind of went through the important players of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So Mm -hmm. now we're going to embrace the Williams sisters. Their impact beginning in the 90s and continuing to this day will never, ever, ever be appreciated or discussed enough. So, Venus and Serena Williams were born in 1980 and 1981, respectively. At the age of 11, Venus had a 63-0 record in USTA Junior Tournaments, and Serena, at 10, had a 46-3 record. And when they turned 15, both Venus and Serena Williams turned pro. The tennis world was immediately put on notice. In 1997, Venus Williams debuted at her first Grand Slam, the U.S. Open. She was the first woman to make the finals in her debut since Pam Shriver in 1978 and the first unseated woman to make the U.S. Open finals since 1958. Oh my gosh. Domination, which just continues. Serena Williams made her first Grand Slam debut at the 1998 Australian Open, where she took out the sixth seed in the first round. The second round matchup was the first of many against her own sister Venus, where she lost. This is really cool, and I did not know this, but in 1998, either Venus or Serena each won the Grand Slam mixed doubles titles at the Grand Slams. Either one of them won with another. Oh, wow. I know. And mixed doubles, too. I played mixed doubles in college with club tennis. Shout out to Akil. Mm I don't know. He probably won't listen to this, but love my boy (laughs) Akil. And it is different just because Mm -hmm. the strategy is different. Mm -hmm. They have more Mm -hmm. power. 
So it makes you kind of play up to their level and use that power against them. So it's not surprisingly that Serena and Venus, they're kind of like the champion of power in women's tennis, Mm -hmm. could handle mixed doubles and win at the highest level at such a young age. That does not surprise me whatsoever, but I did not know that. Wow. The first All-Sisters WTA final occurred at the Miami Masters in 1999, where Venus took home the champion's trophy. Naturally, the two also played doubles together and were able to secure their first Grand Slam at the 1999 French Open. Later that year, Serena became the first black woman to win the U.S. Open singles title since Althea Gibson in 1958. So 2000 was an Olympic year, and sure enough, the two of them won the doubles gold medal, and Venus won the gold medal in singles. Venus won the singles titles at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open in 2000, and she successfully defended those titles the following year in 2001. 2002, another incredible year. Venus rose to number one in the ranking in February after making the finals of the Australian Open. Serena and Venus met for the first time in a Grand Slam final at the French Open, where Serena ultimately won. The pair met again at the Wimbledon final, with Serena winning again, and then Serena became the number one player in the world and Venus number two. Wow. And then the pair met again (laughs) in the U.S. Open final, which Serena outlasted her sister again and took home the winner's trophy, which is, I mean, like that, I wish I was like, I was four, so don't remember anything. I am sure that was just probably like wild to witness. The same two people. Oh my gosh. Sisters. Just like back to back to back. Back to back to back, which is so cool. Yeah, it's kind of like a, uh, maybe the word is swan song, but a swan song for younger siblings everywhere. Like one day, if you work hard, you might be able to beat your older siblings. (laughs) It's true. It is true. She did. I mean, Kirstie used to kick my butt. Like I would think that I'd be playing better than her and Kirstie would always beat me. It's like I had like a, you know, mental block or whatever. Mental block. So to recap, in 2002, Venus reached all four Grand Slam finals, and Serena won three Grand Slam finals all against her sister. So that is just oh total gosh. and complete domination. And to start off 2003, yeah. it was more wow. of the same. The dynamic duo did it again, meeting in the Australian Open final, where Serena got the better of her sister, pleading the career Grand Slam, which she's the sixth woman to do so in the Open era. The career Grand Slam is just winning wow. each of the four majors one time. Oh, and for those of you who don't know, too, what makes that a difficult accomplishment is the four Grand Slams are played on different surfaces. So the Australian Open and the U.S. Open are both played on a hard court. The French Open is played on red clay and the uh, and Wimbledon's played on grass. And it's really difficult to have a game that can be mm-hmm. dominating on every single surface. So like for the men's side, for example... Rafa Nadal, he is the king of clay. No one can ever dispute that. Mm-hmm. He's won more than, I think he's won, a, I want to say 11, definitely at least oh, 10, wow. maybe 11 French Opens because his game is mm-hmm. just built for clay because the ball bounces differently. So to win at least once at every single one is definitely, it's an accomplishment, to mm-hmm. say the least. Yeah. Wow. Throughout the rest of the 2000s, both struggled with injury, which has been well documented. But despite that, Venus won Wimbledon in 2005, 2007, and 2008. Serena won the Australian Open in 2005, 2007, 2009, the U.S. Open in 2008, and Wimbledon in 2009. 
my god like if you just look up like list of you know u.s open women's singles champions or whatever it's just like williams 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 Williams, Williams for the past like in the 2000s and nobody could really touch them consistently if that makes sense overall there's a lot of winning that we can't get to but i want to highlight one more thing or a couple more things serena won the singles gold medal in 2012 and Serena and Venus both won doubles gold medal. Serena then became the first person ever to win gold medals in singles and doubles and to win all four major tournaments. The pair had four gold medals each, which is a record for tennis, the most ever, male or female, I'm pretty sure. In 2016, Serena tied the open era Grand Slam record. So open era starting in that 1968 when pros mm-hmm. could play. She won her 22nd Grand Slam at Wimbledon. Then in 2017, she broke that record, winning the Australian Open, securing her 23rd major, which later on we would find out that she was pregnant while doing so. Which yeah. Is just like, I remember everybody's mind was just blown that somebody could, could win a Grand Slam while pregnant. Yeah. I mean, it's that's just crazy. Uh, she is still seeking number 24 after giving birth to her daughter, Olympia, and the whole tennis world is rooting for her. Yes. Yeah, and so at if she gets the twenty four, she'll tie Margaret Court's record. Yep, which was from the pre open era. So she already yeah. has it. You're for saying the from the open era. era. Yeah, yeah. So on the court, Venus has won forty nine singles titles, seven Grand Slam singles titles, and Serena has won seventy three singles titles with twenty three Grand Slam singles. Serena's earned almost a hundred million dollars in prize money, which is the most of all time. Together, they won 14 Grand Slam doubles titles and 22 doubles tournament titles. They have three doubles gold medals and each have a singles gold medal. They've each won two mixed doubles Grand Slams all in the same year, like I mentioned before. And I would say that no other pair of siblings can come close to this in terms of accomplishments at the highest level in competition. I know that the first to jump to mind would probably be like Payne and Eli Manning, which they mm-hmm. won four Super Bowls between two and two. But personally, I don't think that comes close to like no. the record shattering Absolutely of Serena not. and Venus. So these are all their accomplishments on the court. But I kind of want to talk about some of their accomplishments and activism mm-hmm. off the court. The prize money for men and women at the three other major tournaments besides the U.S. Open was not equal for some period of time. The Australian Open finally came around in 2001, paying both the same. Still, by 2005, Mm -hmm. the French Open and Wimbledon refused to pay equally. And on the eve of the 2006 Wimbledon tournament, Venus wrote in the British newspaper, The Times, I feel so strongly that Wimbledon's stance devalues the principle of meritocracy and diminishes the years of hard work that women on the tour have put into becoming professional tennis players. I believe that athletes, especially female athletes in the world's leading sport for women, should serve as role models. The message I like to convey to women and girls across the globe is that there is no glass ceiling. My fear is that Wimbledon is loudly and clearly sending the opposite message. Wimbledon has argued that women's tennis is worth less for a variety of reasons. It says, for example, that because men play a best of five sets game, they work harder for their prize money. This argument just doesn't make sense. First of all, women players would be happy to play five set matches in Grand Slam tournaments. Secondly, tennis is unique in the world of professional sports. No other sport has men and women competing for a Grand Slam championship on the same stage at the same time. So in the eyes of the general public, the men's and women's game have the same value. 
third, we enjoy a huge and equal celebrity and are paid for the value we deliver to broadcasters and spectators, not the amount of time we spend on the stage. And for the record, the ladies' final at Wimbledon in 2005 lasted 45 minutes longer than the men's. Wimbledon has justified treating women as second class because we do more for the tournament. The argument goes that the top women, who are more likely to also play doubles matches than their male peers, earn more than the top men if you count singles, doubles, and mixed doubles prize money. So the more we support the tournament, the more unequally we should be treated. But doubles and mixed doubles are separate events from the singles competition. Is Wimbledon suggesting that if the top women withdrew from the doubles events, then we would deserve equal prize money in singles? And how then does the All England Club explain why the pot of women's double prize money is nearly £130,000 smaller than the men's doubles prize money? I intend to keep doing everything I can until Billie Jean's original dream of equality is made real. It's a shame that the name of the greatest tournament in tennis, an event that should be a positive symbol for the sport, is tarnished. Wow, Mike drop. I know. She like laid it all out there. It was eloquent. I mean, she just called them out in their own newspaper. In their own newspaper. And it's just, you know what? It's funny. At the beginning of the episode, we were talking about equal pay in soccer. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. women's national team has met this exact same argument where they were saying that, you know, actually the U.S. women's national team has netted more money than the men's, but because they've been winning. And this argument that like, sure, these women are actually making more money because they're playing mixed doubles, doubles and singles. They're playing three times the amount of tennis, essentially. So in response to this, the British PM and much of Parliament supported Venus and the women's tennis goals. Under enormous pressure from this letter and other sources, Wimbledon announced equal prize money in 2007 with the French Open following one day later. Dang. So the change that they wanted to see came, and that's what happens when you don't sit silent. She used her platform. She used her voice. She got government backing, which is always kind of a good push, and Mm -hmm. she made it happen. Go Venus. So on top of accomplishing this grand effort to be paid equally at the four major finals, which this has trickled down to many of the other smaller events. So the way that tennis mm-hmm. is set up, they play these like tune-up tournaments for the Grand Slams on like the respective surfaces. So the tier one down from the four majors are the Masters 1000s tournaments. One example is Indian Wells out in California, which is in the spring. But I'm pretty sure that most of those also pay equally. Because, again, it's the same stage men and women are playing. So it's not only these majors, it's kind of had a trickle-down effect into the other tournaments as well, which is just huge. So both Venus and Serena have shown unwavering support for the Black Lives Matter movement, gender equality, and LGBTQ rights. They have charitable foundations. They're actually both are um, minority owners of the Miami Dolphins. So Mm -hmm. they're the first black woman to have a stake in an NFL team. But overall, I can't even begin to say everything that needs to be said about these two women, but their impact goes way, way, way beyond the tennis court. Also, I haven't highlighted every single person that needs to be highlighted, every single women's tennis player, such as Naomi Osaka and all of her accomplishments, Sophia Kennan, Ashley Barty, Bianca Andreescu. I mean, the list goes on and on. 
Caroline Wozniacki, Lindsay Davenport, mm-hmm. Marie Sharapova, those of other ages. But I do encourage all of you to start following some tennis and start to get yes. to know these players. They're wonderful women. They have great personalities on and off the court. The mm-hmm. tight matches will stop your heart. And these players just make it easy to love them. I take pride knowing that tennis is the closest thing to equality between men and women in the sporting community. Mm-hmm. And it could never Thanks have happened without the strength Check and determination by women to be included and treated as equals for since the sports extras inception and in more content oh, on the yes. wonderful world so well said. of women's And we sports. also, we have a heck of talented young American women like Sloane Stevens, Madison Keys, Coco Goff, Sophia Kennan, just a lot of them rising up and they're really fun to watch. My last little plug for tennis is that the US Open shouted out there should be a better verb for that. Like shout it out <laughs> sounds bad, yeah. but <laughs> shot out. The U.S. Open called out all of the moms who were in the 2020 yes. draw. And there were nine moms in the first round of the U.S. Open. Just to echo what Julia said, there are a lot of great women in the tennis world today. It's a great sport to watch. We'll we'll throw some stuff on our website. Follow tennis. Stay tuned. We have an Instagram now. Instagram. At History of the Sports Bra. Mm-hmm. So catch us on the gram. From the history of the Sports Bra team, we want to wish you a good night. And play hard.